This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Good afternoon. Um, Welcome, everyone, uh, to Locating Abolition in the Fight Against Imperialism. Um, My name is Woods Irvin, and I am a member of Critical Resistance, a member-led organization committed to the fight for abolition internationally. I use they, them pronouns and am joining you from Wampanoag land or Northeast Massachusetts. This panel is brought to you by the newly launched Abolition Now Network of which Critical Resistance is a member. The Abolition Now Network is a formation of key organizations in the abolitionist movement that have come together to facilitate our collective exchange of knowledge, language, strategy, and analysis. The goal of the network is to both strengthen our own practice and also have a network that can strongly and quickly respond to issues as they arise to assert an abolitionist perspective on a national stage. For this panel, we intend to situate the fight for abolition in its relationship to the broader fight against imperialism. We'll we'll be building on our prior sessions in the series. So if you haven't seen them, check them out on Haymarket's YouTube channel. So for the first half of this panel, um, our co-speakers will paint in broad strokes the ways that the prison industrial complex is deployed as part of the U.S. imperialist project. We'll have a little bit of a break to engage the audience in an interactive component before we circle back to the speakers and go deeper into a discussion about resistance and um, solidarity um, and internationalism. We'll then have a little time at the end, hopefully, for Q&A before we close out. So as you learn things that pique your interest, please share questions in the chat box so that I can bring them back to our presenters to discuss. And that brings me to my fantastic co-presenters this evening. They include Nicolas Cruz from the Red Nation, Lara Kiswani from Arab Resource and Organizing Project, Deborah Alemu from Black LGBTQ Migrant Project, and William Depu from Daisy's Rising Up and Moving. To ground the discussion, 
I'd like to give brief definitions of imperialism, the PIC, and abolition. Um, next slide, please. So imperialism is a global system whereby the dominant political and economic interests of one nation expropriate for their own enrichment, the land, labor, raw materials, and markets of another people. CR's definition of the prison industrial complex is that it is the overlapping interests of business and government that use policing, imprisonment, and surveillance to address economic, political, and social issues. And lastly, CR's definition of PIC abolition is that it is a political vision with the goal of eliminating imprisonment, policing, and surveillance, and creating lasting alternatives to punishment and imprisonment. We know that policing and imprisonment have been features of the US project since its inception, especially since the prison industrial complex has consolidated in the post-World War II period and the US has become a global economic superpower. The US deploys the military globally, acting as top cop around the world. To secure its interests under the neoliberal project, the US exports parts of the prison industrial complex, policing, surveillance, and imprisonment in efforts of curtailing the potential of resistance movements and shrinking the self-determination of the people struggling against the ravages of the US imperialist project. The conversation that we'll be having today will be of particular significance given the upcoming presidential election in the United States, where we have a fascistic incumbent threatening a coup within the global context of fascist consolidation in countries like Brazil, India, and the UK. Lastly, before turning it over to the first speaker, I want to introduce the visual we'll be working with for the, se for the session. Um, given the complexity of how the PIC is deployed under imperialism, we thought it'd be helpful to have a visual that we use to help locate the various ways it occurs, whether through border creation and enforcement, export and exchange of um, export and exchange of policing and imprisonment tactics, the policing and detention of migrants, or the attempted divide and conquer strategy of recruiting our own communities to police us. In that, in the chat, there will be a bit.ly link where audience members can find a downloadable version of the map that we're using for today's session. So now that we're all set, I'll hand it over to Nicolas Cruz from the Red Nation to talk about border policing as part of the Settler Colonial Project. Thanks, Woods. Um, if we could go to slide five with Settler Colonialism and Border Enforcement. Um, hi, everybody. As Woods says, I'm Nicolas. Um, I'm with the Red Nation. I'm one of the political education co-chairs for the Red Nation. Um, I'm based in Wichin, which is the Ohlone territory, currently called Oakland. 
Um, and I'm really grateful for you all being here with us today. And, and hopefully um, you've gotten to see some of our other sessions. Um, and as Wood says, we'll be building on those. Um, I want to start off talking about how the U.S. came to control its current borders in the first place. Um, and in this document, in this, in this slide in particular, we're looking at um, the ways that settler colonialism enforces its borders, right? Um, so in the Red Nation, we say that the Indian Wars and westward expansion were the first forms of U.S. imperialism because the United States, after it was established as a colony, invaded the indigenous nations that surrounded it. Um, this was through a combination of military warfare, squatting, broken treaties, um, and ecological destruction. And, and through that, the United States eventually came to surround the, the indigenous nations and absorb them, right? Um, and border enforcement began with the frontier forts. Um, it began with the Indian Wars, the settler militias sent on missions to exterminate tribes and collect scalps. Um, as the U.S. expanded west, it removed indigenous nations. Um, and push them further and further west until it could expand no more. Um, and this is when we started to see the rise in use of reservations, right, which were basically open air um, concentration camps, which are guarded by the military. Um, and, and of course, they're often built next to forts. Um, and then once westward expansion ended with the settlement of California and Oregon and Washington, um, settlers turned to genocidal violence uh, when removal was no longer possible or desirable since they were looking for more and more land. Um, the settler state then turned to enforcing its uh, newly established borders and excluding certain populations from immigrating. Um, and that's what we see the result of today in our, in our modern form of border enforcement, um, which prevents those it deems unworthy of entering while still allowing capital and goods to flow freely, as you see on the top right of, the, of this map. Um, that capital and, and commodities can move across the border, but people can't, especially if they are um, not deemed worthy, if they're not categorized as white, if they don't have certain profitable skills, or if their labor can't be exploited. Um, and the prison industrial complex has really expanded, um, especially recently, to include migrant detention, deportation, and surveillance. Um, and, you know, incarceration, like Indian reservations, is a form of removal, right? It's taking people from our communities and warehousing them in off, uh, often remote locations. Um, and if we think about borders very expansively for a second, prisons are an impenetrable border uh, that prevents crossing, right, with violence and surveillance. And even more expensively, we can think about racial and financial segregation, right, with the, the diagram showing racialized communities and impoverished communities um, having borders that is another form of border enforcement, right? Um, as an example, redlining dictated who could buy houses in which neighborhoods, and nowadays gentrification removes working class people of color to make room for those who can pay more. Um, and, you know, just to talk about border, uh, border town violence real quick, reservations were some of the first sites of border enforcement. Um, indigenous people were often restricted from leaving uh, reservations. Um, and now that settler cities surround indigenous nations, um, native people are subjected to border town violence that polices their presence off reservation. Um, um, and, and we see this in like Rapid City, South Dakota, Gallup, New Mexico, um, and Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I grew up. Um, and these places see very high levels of anti-Indigenous violence from police and settlers. Um, and this is just a reminder that prisons, border walls, detention centers, and military bases all exist on stolen Indigenous land and are built in order to maintain that occupation. The U.S. settler state exports its technologies, as we'll talk about in a little bit, um, it exports its, its techniques of incarceration and policing to parts of the world whose resources or labor is trying to exploit, and it brings back the military techniques that it develops. Um, and so that's that's all I'll share for you, with you for now, um, and I'll hand it back to Woods. Thank you. Thanks, Nicolas, for um, that really beautiful and brief articulation of um, how uh, 
the PAC is um, deployed um, as part of uh, settler colonialism. Um, next, um, I am going to pass it off to Lada Kiswani. Um, who's going to talk a little bit more about um, how um, the PIC is um, deployed internationally um, as part of imperialism. Take it away, Lada. Thanks, Lada, and thanks to everyone for organizing this event. Again, my name is Lada Kiswani. I'm with the Arab Resource and Organizing Center, AROC. We're based in the San Francisco Bay Area. We serve uh, poor and working class Arab and Muslim immigrants and organize our community to build power and overturn the systems, um, social systems that perpetuate both forced migration, racism, but also exploitation, war, and imperialism. We connect with and organize around local struggles of Arabs and other black and brown communities and understand um, AROC is a vehicle to help build those connections and organize to change our conditions, build and shift power. So in that regard, um, we also, anti-imperialism really shapes all of our work since our mission is to, um, our vision is for liberated and dignified Arab and Muslim communities from here to our homelands. And um, in that way, anti-imperialism both shapes our legal service work and in terms of how we relate to the idea of forced migration and why people need those services in the first place. It um, relates to our cultural work and our cultural events and how we also resist against ethnic genocide and the ways in which our communities have been erased both here in diaspora but globally. Um, it also shapes how we organize against war and mobilize to support Palestine um, against apartheid Israel to boycott, divest, and sanction Israel. And it also shapes how we organize around campaigns, specifically around the militarization of police. So anti-imperialism really weaves its way through all of our work because we see ourselves as internationalists um, and um, anti-capitalists and anti-imperialists. So for our definition, our understanding, and thank you, Nicolas, for starting in Woods, for starting off with clear explanations and definitions of imperialism, um, is really that it's a global system of oppression, right? Where states advance its, their interests and accumulate wealth and power through domination, subordination, exploitation, employing both military and economic policy. So all of that is part of imperialism. And how we relate that to the prison industrial complex, we went through a process for many years to actually delve deep with our base and our members um, to, and leadership to understand the direct connections between the prison industrial complex here in the United States and US imperialism and global repression and policing. Um, we know that we cannot rely on police or other forms of law enforcement to respond to harm. We know that the system is used to exercise state repression and inhibit poor people and people of color self-determination. Um, so rather than providing safety in response to harm, the system is the cause of harm and the cause of much of the insecurity of our communities. So in terms of how we understand it relating specifically to our work internationally and around imperialism, we recognize that the same forces attempting to normalize the Israeli occupation, for instance, of Palestine, are at work attempting to normalize the use of the prison industrial complex here in the United States for containing, repressing, and eliminating aspects of the communities in which Arab people and people of color live and work. So we reject imperialism from the political imprisonment of Palestinians and other Arabs in imprisonment to poor people, people of color, and political dissidents here in the United States. That's a framework we use to understand 
the broader connections, and also seeing that in many ways, the prison industrial complex here in the United States is the inward version of US imperialism elsewhere and externally around the world. Um, so how that relates to the work we do on the ground, and specifically today, I'll be talking more about our campaign um, as part of the coalition to stop Urban Shield, which was the largest police militarization um, training in the world that took place here in the Bay Area, is that we understood Urban Shield from the very beginning to be a campaign to challenge and end this militarization expo because it was bringing more harm to our communities, but also a way to redistribute economic and political power, um, truly really uh, adhering to abolitionist politics. And, and we also understood it as a way to build power in the Arab community and move our own people around the concepts of policing and militarization um, and understanding that the same people that are you know, the cops here in the United States are trained by the same military that is oppressing and occupying you in your homeland. And why is that? And what are those relationships? And what are those dynamics? Both also importantly, understanding there are distinctions. So for us, it's also really important to know that we have a lot of things in common as anti-imperialists and those working to challenge the prison industrial complex. There are shared experiences, but there are also distinctions. There are distinct conditions that shape that um, experience. And that also means there are distinct solutions and concepts of self-determination that result from that. And all of that is how we orient towards this work. And I will be talking more about that later today. Thank you so much, Lada, um, like for your really clear articulation. Um, I think that really crystallizes um, what the work that we're trying to do here in this panel um, is, is about. And so I um, really appreciate that. Um, I will now pass it off um, to, um, um, De I'm gonna pass it off to Deborah Alemu of Black LGBTQ Migrant Project, um, who's gonna um, talk a little bit more um, about migrant detention, um, deportation, um, and criminalization. All right, thank you, Woods. Um, welcome everyone, especially all of the activists, organizers, and revolutionaries who rebel against imperialism. Uh, I'm Deborah, I do you, she, her pronouns, and I am currently on Tonkawa, Comanche, and Lipan Apache land, also known as Central Texas. Um, I'm an organizer with BLMP, and as BLMP, we envision a world where no one is forced to give up their homeland. Uh, we want to ensure liberation of all Black people. Um, and to do that, we, we have hubs that focus on local organizing. We also build international coalitions with working class peoples across the diaspora. We fight deportations and challenge the homophobic, xenophobic, transphobic, racist, anti-Black binary capitalist world that we've, um, that imperialism has forced us to inherit. And the issues I'll be highlighting today will be around the need to abolish police and ICE, uh, as those institutions are both strongholds of the imperialist project. And these institutions are terrorizing working class people, especially black, queer, and trans migrants. 
Um, and that's because police is rooted in an effort to sustain the imperial winds or spoils. Um, so land, property, natural resources, labor, etc. Um, these are things that imperialist powers have won <laughs> and then try to sustain um, through... Uh, through local police departments, state troopers, the enforcement removal operations, Department of Homeland Security, Immigration Customs Enforcement, the FBI, the CIA, and military. They're all extensions of the Imperial Project. So um, it's important for all of us here to know that there are over 800 U.S. military bases across the world, and ICE in particular has its own set of bases in every single continent on our globe. And uh, I'll read an excerpt straight from ICE's website. ICE was created in 2003 through a merger of the investigative and interior enforcement elements of Immigration and Naturalization Service. ICE now, 17 years later, has more than 20,000 law enforcement officials and support personnel in more than 400 offices in the United States and around the world. The agency has an annual budget of approximately $8 billion, with a B, dollars, and is, um, that's, that's straight from their website. Um, so we see that they have a huge um, stronghold on our people, both in the United States and abroad. Um, and so this gross prioritization of resources by the U.S. Settler Project has caused migrants um, in the states to be classified as refugees, asylum seekers, visa holders, TPS, DED, DACA recipients, and undocumented, um, among other designations. Often these migrants, we've been pushed out of our countries due to the economic burdens caused by imperial powers. And... Um, you know, in the form of our debt to imperialist powers, in the form of our um, proximity to their bases back home in our homelands. Um, and it's important, also important for us to know that ICE has deported 40,000 people to over 138 countries. That's just since March of this year. Um, this is a horrific machine that um, places migrants back into the very conditions they were fleeing. And for those who do not get deported are facing the reality that there have been just this year, 21 deaths in ICE custody and over 200 deaths since the ICE's inception 17 years ago. So later I'll talk a little bit more about how imperialism impacts the current day migration patterns. Um, I'll highlight specifically the Cameroonian struggle, the Garifuna struggle and um, and some of the work that BLMP has done to support these struggles. Thank you so much, Deborah. That was awesome. I ugh, this is such a great panel. I'm so excited about everything that um, we're getting to learn today, and um, look forward to our second half. Um, I uh, lastly, I'm gonna pass it off to Will. Uh, Depu from Daisy's Rising Up in, um, and Moving. Um, and Will is going to talk to us um, a little bit more about um, 
the project of recruitment into military, policing, and border enforcement. Thanks, Woods. Uh, again, hey folks, my name is Will. Um, I'm an organizer at DRUM, Daisy's Rising Up and Moving. Um, we're a membership-led organization based in New York City. Um, we organize and build a power of working class South Asian and Indo-Caribbean community members um, to lead uh, to lead uh, our work against uh, the different systems that continue to oppress our communities. Uh, we especially do work around uh, and organizing around immigrant rights, um, workers' rights, um, around uh, policing, and around how actually we really develop the society that we really want for all communities. Um, here in the city, um, and like other parts of the country, and like what folks have discussed earlier, like, you know, working class communities of color especially get targeted, um, be it Black and Indigenous communities here, and also immigrant communities coming to the U.S. and also around the world. Um, and for us, you know, we've seen um, uh, how working class communities here of color in the city um, are getting recruited into law enforcement, uh, either and other forms of the state to oppress our folks. So either police, military, and like even ICE that we're seeing, especially communities of color. Communities that have seen for generations resources and funding being uh, cut and taken away um, and where the the state has uh, heavily uh, funded uh, the police military continuously and using so that funding to also heavily recruit in our communities. Um, so they target folks, right, that are struggling to survive with this idea that you're gonna get this good job with benefits because they know we're struggling in our communities um, and they try different tactics of coming into the community such as you know being part of community events sponsoring events um, uh, we're seeing here in new york city in the last five years the rise of ethnic police associations created from south asian daisy communities right from the police that are recruited created cricket leagues to entice our young people to join these cricket leagues as a way to speak to them, but also surveil our communities. And for us as DRUM, you know, we have a membership base of folks who are mostly undocumented, um, who have uh, seen the impacts and experienced the impacts of surveillance um, in this country going back uh, since 2000, um, who, are, who have experienced harm from NCRs, um, the Muslim registry, um, and we continue to see our folks have like, so it's important to us to have this political grounding understanding of how policing, how policing militarism and imperialism impacts our communities, impacts it not just here, but at home as well, because many of our folks left their home countries because of militarism, because of being targeted by the state, by the military, by the police. And they come here and, you know, they're also being oppressed by similar forces. Um, and now, you know, our work is how do we counter uh, the militarism in the U.S. that also perpetuates abroad? Um, so for us, you know, a lot of our work is to do that deep political orientation understanding uh, with our members around what is the role 
of policing and militarism and how we um, organize um, to uh, counter it. And also, but also how, how do those, uh, those uh, systems uh, suppress our organizing and what we do to counter that. So some of the ways we've engaged um, on countering recruitment has been um, our uh, like having uh, discussions with our members, political education on uh, and agitating them to resist police um, and the military recruitment. The way that's um, looked is like different levels. So like lowest level is like engaging in meetings, workshops, conversations, um, with members and youth on why not to join. Um, a level above that would be, uh, you know, if uh, members speaking to their, their friends, students, families about not joining. In those circumstances, it also includes uh, members like asking us for advice around maybe they have a friend who is thinking about uh, joining the police or the military and how they can have those conversations with their with their friend on um, why, how, what, what the impact is on our society and our communities. Um, another level is youth bringing members to drum to get it, to get educated to veer away from uh, military police recruitment, law enforcement recruitment, and where then that that person becomes politically engaged to then actually engage other people in the community around this as well. Um, and then the the highest level of engagement we've done is taking action. And the way we've done that is when we've heard of recruiters coming into our neighborhoods in like Queens and, and in the Bronx, Sure. Um, I can, um, hopefully we'll, we'll be back, uh, shortly. Um, okay. Will you cut out for about 10 seconds? Um, okay. Do you want to? Can you hear me now? Yes. Cool. Um, sorry about that, folks. Uh, so yeah, so it's like, you know, how do like we, we do the deep political understanding to not just to develop our membership to have an understanding, but how are we taking action to make the political shift in our communities on the impacts of these different forces um, to counter it and also actually be like, no, like our folks should not be joining the police, should not be joining the military, should not be joining ICE. Like actually, you know, these are continuously forces that harm our communities, continue to take funding away from our communities. We we heard like how much ICE is like the cost of ICE, right? So continually harming and taking resources away and how do we counter that? Um, I'll talk a little bit more later around how we actually work as different community oppressed communities together uh, to really do transformative solidarity, um, especially during these times. And I'll pass it back to you, Woods. Thanks so much, Will. Um, uh, slide nine, please. Um, we, we've covered a lot of ground, phew, um, already. Um, thank you all so much for uh, doing such solid jobs um, of explaining the manifestations of the PIC um, as part of the imperialist project. Um, but, and now that we've 
uh, strengthened our collective understanding. Um, we're going to move uh, into contours of resistance um, and liberatory struggles in um, opposition to the imperialist project uh, through the lens of abolition. Um, but first, we're going to engage in a little interactive portion. So again, in the chat, you'll see a bit.ly link uh, that you can click on for the map that we've been using. Um, we encourage folks to print it out if you can, um, open a digital copy, or uh, start a sketch of your own drawing of the map. Um, we encourage you to trace examples of movement across the map, as well as examples of movement building uh, between locations, practices, and communities uh, to resist imperialism and fight for abolition. Um, and for the rest of the session, uh, we invite you to work on your own map and make it your own, adding examples and things that you've learned from our speakers um, and your own experience and knowledge. Um, so session uh, slide 10, please. We'll be live tweeting and sharing Instagram stories throughout the rest of the session. So snap a picture of a piece of your map or share a favorite quote from one of our speakers. Um, or um, a connection that you're making using the hashtag, hashtag locating abolition. Um, and on Instagram, you can tag at critical resistance um, for a reshare and then, um, or repost and on Twitter um, at C underscore resistance. Um, so, um, we'll give you a short moment to download the maps and um, do a little work on them before we restart. Um, so we'll come back um, in, uh, we'll come back shortly. Welcome back, everyone. Um, I so look forward to seeing all of the maps that you've created. Um, so um, we are going to spend the rest of our time talking about abolitionist organizing uh, against the PIC um, with an anti-imperialist lens. Um, first, um, I'm going to go a little bit into CR's work. Um, as a campaign and project organization, Critical Resistance engage, engages in uh, work to uh, abolish the PIC um, via those campaigns and projects uh, with an internationalist framework. Um, we engage in fighting, um, uh, for instance, we engage in fighting jail expansion in our San Francisco and our Oakland chapter. Um, our, our Oakland and LA chapters. Um, as we know, in states and uh, counties where there aren't detention centers, Black and Brown immigrants are held in jails um, before being transport, uh, transferred or deported. Um, so shrinking jail capacity reduces the likelihood of detention um, uh, for our communities overall. Um, our Oakland chapter, after stopping the construction of a new jail in San Francisco in 2016, um, won a huge victory this year um, and pushed the San Francisco Board of Supervisors to commit to shutting down um, an existing jail. 
Um, so this vote was secured in May in the midst of continued organizing pressure on the San Francisco Board of uh, Supervisors to release currently incarcerated people during COVID-19, um, as many of our families and communities um, have been inside um, falling ill. Um, so the chapter has been monitoring closure throughout the summer um, and the work to officially close the facility has finally begun. In Los Angeles, our LA chapter has been organizing as part of the Justice LA Coalition, which last year defeated plans for two new jails in LA County. Um, so also we're part of the National No New Jails Network, which we recently launched. So if you're an abolitionist organization fighting jails, um, hit up that network at nationalnonewjails at gmail.com. And the link will be in the chat. Um, CR also engages in the fight against policing. Um, as we've heard, local police forces um, are intertwined with varying in varying ways with the policing at the with policing at the state, federal, and international levels. Um, and as we've learned in this moment of hashtag defund police, um, it is imperative that we shrink the size and scope of police forces to reduce the harm um, to our communities um, and give us room uh, to. Our, uh, to um, both articulate and grow and fight for um, more self-determination. Toward that end, um, our Portland chapter just made a huge leap um, in their campaign um, and have gotten commitments from decision makers to disband the anti-gang unit of the Portland Police Bureau. Um, and uh, this is all in the midst of right-wing mobilization um, and federal police repression in Portland. Um, um, also, um, to learn more about our organizing, um, CR recently released a toolkit on anti-police organizing, so check that out. Um, and the link will be posted in the chat. Um, we also released um, back in July, I believe, and, and an abolitionist platform um, on ways to, uh, to address the COVID pandemic without expanding the PAC and while growing path our pathways towards abolition. Um, and fitting uh, with the theme of the panel, um, our final point um, of the platform um, was is grounded in um, in an internationalist um, framework um, because we know that, and as we've seen, um, the um, as COVID-19, COVID-19 doesn't, doesn't um, isn't limited by borders. Um, and so the resources and support that um, our communities need worldwide um, should also be able to um, our resources and our and our and our people need to be able to travel in order to get their needs met, um, and also to have access to resource life giving resources. Um, so um, there's a lot of work that's been done to fight back 
um, against the PAC. Um, and there's more to learn about and to learn from. Um, please check out our website and find us on social media. Um, now I'll pass it off to Dicolas to talk about the resistance organizing against the PIC um, and settler colonialism. Excellent. Um, so I'm gonna start out talking about indigenous resistance. Um, and I'm gonna talk about land back, which um, you know is is the oldest form of resistance, right? Since land has been stolen, um, but has also recently become um, a pretty popular call. Um, and, and many organizations, um, tribes and communities have been calling for land back. Um, and, and this partially came um, from protests recently at Mount Rushmore, um, Heysapa, which are the Black Hills, um, and, you know, and Trump's fourth, uh, July 4th rally there. Um, so if we could go to the next slide. Um, and, and Landbeck really gets to the the heart of what settler colonialism and decolonization are about, right? Which is land. Um, the the as we talked about, the first act of U.S. imperialism was the theft of land from indigenous nations, and so it, it's only fitting that land return is um, is the first form of resistance by indigenous people. Um, and since we're talking about you know locating it with abolition, I want to to talk about why that's important, right? Abolition is is um, about ending things, but it's also about being able to build um, a new society and, and a society that doesn't have prisons, that doesn't have police, that doesn't have um, border enforcement, right? So so abolition is is very much central to the work that the Red Nation does, um, and that a lot of indigenous um, revolutionaries are working on, right? Um, Partially because we're trying to change the relationship to land um, away from private property, the abolishment of private property. Um, if we go to the next slide, um, you know, as I said, land back has become uh, kind of a rallying cry in the last um, few months, I think. Um, and, and, and we've seen a lot of protests and, and demonstrations um, and a lot of calls for honoring treaties. And, and I just wanted to point out that, you know, if if either treaties were honored or if the breaking of treaties, which the U.S. has done, um, if the breaking of treaties negated land sessions, the U.S. settler state would not exist as it currently does, right? Um, the land base that the United States claims sovereignty over um, would look a lot different if treaties were honored. Um, and so, again, this is this is why we start here um, with indigenous resistance for land return, um, and, and we'll connect it to the um, to the broader struggle for abolition. Um, so, if we go to the next slide, please. Um, I want to I want to talk about something that the Red Nation has been working on, um, which is the Red Deal. The Red Deal is our platform that we released um, at the end of last year. I believe I'm kind of losing track of time now um, with COVID, but and, and it was a response to the Green New Deal, um, but it went beyond the scope um, of the settler state, um, right? So it's it's not a it's not a deal um, with with the government of the United States. It, it's a deal with with people, with the humble people of the earth, right? Where um, we're trying to um, put forth a, a vision for what we, you know, the, the society that we would want to live in. Um, and again, it's, it's not the Red New Deal because it's the same old deal, right? We're calling for honoring the treaties. Um, and it calls for ending the occupation, um, divesting from military, uh, border enforcement, police and prisons, um, as all of these are obstacles to liberation and they're also major con contributors to the climate crisis. Um, and so the green uh, or the red deal um, addresses the the climate crisis that the green new deal does, um, but it really goes further and says we need to um, actually end these systems of oppression and, and redirect their resources um, to our communities. 
Um, one example that I want to highlight of, of you know, a kind of transformative solidarity that is, that is coming out um, of by uh, through works of abolition and, and specifically against border enforcement um, is the anti-border wall organizing that's happening in Kumie territory and Tona Adam uh, lands in, in uh, California and Arizona respectively. Um, and you know, people have been <coughs> me, people have been fighting the construction of the border wall through their um, ancestral territories. Um, some of them are desecrating sacred sites, burial sites. Um, they're preventing both people and and uh, non-human relatives from crossing the border, um, and so they've been resisting that. But I think it also is building a a kind of um, challenge to settler uh, domination of these territories, right? A challenge to the legitimacy of the border itself and of the exclusion of certain people. Um, and so indigenous resistance um, to these to these oppressive systems are kind of uh, building those relationships, building the kinship um, towards other communities that are that are migrating, that are being, um, as we talked about earlier, are being forced from their homelands um, because of US imperialism and, and anti-border enforcement work um, is, is kind of building that. If we could go to the next slide. Um, so here we see our comrades uh, Nick and Melanie, um, who are our co-founders of the Red Nation, um, and they are at the LA airport um, after the after Trump's first Muslim ban, I believe, um, and and you know putting forward this message that there can be no ban on stolen land. And on the right, we see um, a, a protester holding a sign that says, "No one is illegal on stolen land." Um, and so we, you know, the Red Nation really sees that that we have to challenge the settlers uh, state's legitimacy and, and right to exclude people from this land, um, as well as their right to imprison or incarcerate or police or brutalize people. Um, so if we go to the next slide. So the Red Deal reinvests the resources that we would take from the police, from the military, and we redirect them into an economy of care that will benefit everyone. Um, as I said earlier, it's a deal with the humble people of the earth. It's not a deal with those in power. We're not um, you know, necessarily making demands of those in power, but rather we're trying to um, envision what um, what we're working towards. And, and also we believe that what creates crisis cannot solve it, right? So um, the police can't solve missing and murdered indigenous women um, and two-spirit. They cannot solve um, issues of poverty, right, that is created by the capitalist system. Um, we don't look for market solutions to, uh, to um, climate crisis. We don't look for reforming the settler colonial system or the capitalist system, but rather we look to radical social movements. Um, and, and of course, struggles for abolition, black liberation, and the movement for black lives in particular um, have inspired the Red Deal. Um, and so I, I encourage you all to check it out. Um, you can learn more about it on our website, therednation.org, um, and hopefully the link will be in the, in the chat. Um, if we could go to the next slide. So third, I want to um, highlight indigenous uh, solidarity internationally. Um, you know, indigenous people from Asia, Africa, and the Americas have organized across national borders and formed the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, also known as UNDRIP, um, and, and as well as the People's Accords and the Rights of Pachamama. Um, we must continue to support these land struggles and, and water protect uh, water protection um, across the world, especially since indigenous people are most likely to be murdered mm -hmm. for environmental activism. Um, and and you know we've we've seen um, a lot of the resistance to uh, new mining projects, uh, fossil fuel projects, um, as well as the the militarization of police 
um, and the increasing, you know, surveillance and and um, development of uh, prison industrial complexes in other nations. We've seen resistance to that um, from people uh, from those from those nations, and we have to support those um, through international solidarity. Um, as Lada said, we we view ourselves as internationalists. Um, there are indigenous people all around the world, and and we um, struggle with them. Um, finally, I want to you know point out that we have to build a strong anti-war movement, um, especially as I said, uh, with those other movements happening around the world, we have to take off pressures from our comrades in other nations um, who are engaged in revolutionary struggles, um, and we must support those struggles. Um, and, and I just want to you know highlight and celebrate um, a recent victory just this Monday, um, the Bolivia uh, the Bolivian election just re-elected um, the movement towards socialism or MAS. Um, which was overthrown by a, a right-wing coup supported by the U.S. Um, and, and, you know, indigenous people in Bolivia said, you know, that, that they rejected the coup. They rejected the, the right-wing um, government that installed itself. Um, and this is a victory. And, and this came about from both mobilization of indigenous people in Bolivia as well as uh, international solidarity. Um, and, and these are the kind of victories that we um, should really celebrate and support and and, continue, and hopefully continue to see um, as people rise up against the, the kind of growing threat of right-wing um, fascist governments around the world, um, most of them supported by the U.S., of course. Um, and then, you know, just I just want to make a final comment um, before I pass it on. Um, I just wanted to say that, you know, we hold a special place in our hearts for our Palestinian comrades um, facing Zionist settler colonialism. Um, you know, they're, they're facing a lot of the same technologies and techniques that are being used um, by Israeli companies uh, here in the U.S. along the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, you know, the Tan the Aldam people um, who, are, who are fighting the border wall are facing a lot of the, you know, border patrol agents who have been trained in Israel, um, Homeland Security agents who have been trained and who, who work closely with the IDP, um, sorry, the IDF. And so, so we always have to um, maintain that solidarity and, and support for our Palestinian comrades. Um, so that's all I'll share for now. Um, but thank you all for listening and I'll pass back to us. Thank you so much, um, Nicolas. Um, thank you for introducing us to um, the Red Deal. Um, thank you for your um, clarity around um, what caused the crisis can't resolve the crisis. Um, and um, introducing us to the um, building kinship um, around the anti-border enforcement work, um, the need to build the anti-war movement, um, through um, an internationalist politic. Um, and I think that um, all of the examples you gave really, um, really demonstrated that. Um, so now uh, we're gonna uh, move over to um, Deborah, who's gonna talk a little bit about um, movements to resist um, migrant criminalization. Take it away, Deborah. Awesome. Hi. Um, yeah, so I really resonate with what was just shared around um, what caused the problem cannot possibly solve the problem. Um, we, our work with BLMP also recognizes that, and that's why we're not investing in crimmigration, which is criminal immigration, um, 
put together. Uh, and it refers to the collusion between local law enforcement and ICE. So we recognize that problems within black migrant communities cannot be solved um, with that collaboration and collusion. Um, we know that police uh, and policing um, have been rooted in slave patrol and union busting for over 400 years. Um, and ICE is merely a teenager at 17 years old, um, but has done a lot of damage to our communities. And we see this collusion between police and ICE um, in the case of Zaza, someone who we um, fought hard the last couple years um, by creating a grassroots campaign um, to push for her to be able to stay in this country. Um, currently, uh, Zaza is a trans asylum seeker from Jamaica who was criminalized in Philadelphia um, by the local police department there. And they then transferred her onto ICE custody, um, after which she was put in uh deportation or removal proceedings. Um, she was then forced to return to Jamaica, um, but because she couldn't possibly live in a country that um, where her gender was not only uh, not affirmed, but her life was threatened um, by imprisonment. And um, so she returned to the United States uh, once again, only to be detained again. Um, and from the point that she was, uh, she returned until this day, she's still in a detention center in Aurora, Colorado. Um, she so she has spent seven years of her life, um, actually eight years of her life behind bars, um, essentially for possession of marijuana, um, and being uh, a migrant, um, Migrants often face, I guess, double punishment. Uh, so they'll serve their time in jail or prison and then have to serve uh, an unknowable amount of time in immigration detention centers across the country. So that is something that Zaza experienced. Um, and it's a campaign we're really fighting hard to, to win her freedom. Um, and we recognize that she's been behind bars for so much time because of um, because of homophobia, transphobia, anti-black racism. A lot of her time detained has been in solitary confinement. Um, and, you know, it's a cycle we've seen not just with Zaza, but with many other people, um, particularly black LGBTQ migrants who are because of their legal status, are forced into homelessness um, and an underground economy, which makes them vulnerable to interactions with police. Um, that, of course, subsequently re results in arrest, detention, and eventually deportation. Um, so it's crimmigration is not abstract. It's not like a new lefty word. Um, it's very real in people's lives, particularly Black migrants. Um, Another way that, you know, we resist imperialism and push towards abolition is by, you know, fighting the uh, tendency for movements in the U.S. to be so U.S. centric. So we're in solidarity with many international struggles. Um, I'll briefly talk about three countries that we are in um, solidarity with. And that's because that's our membership, our base. Um, 
has experienced these struggles. Um, first, I'll, I'll talk about Cameroon. Um, they're undergoing a crisis that has its roots in imperialist domination. Um, you know, we had France and the U- UK um, divide the country um, and that goes way back to the occupations um, that took over from German colonization. Um, And to this day, we see that the much larger French colony um, that was initially granted independence has a strong political hold over the entire country. And um, a a few years ago, when the Anglophone, much smaller community, was forced to um, essentially only teach and speak in French. Everything was becoming French dominant. Um, you began to see the Anglophone community fighting back against that repression um, and wanting to separate as their own country. Um, this would have never happened had colonial imperial powers not come in and tried to divide up Africa. Um, And the colonial powers to this day that support dictatorships um, in Cameroon um, has really set back justice for Cameroonians. And so in the last few years, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of Cameroonians fly from West Africa to South America and then make a journey through 12 to 15 countries um, by bus, by boat, um, by train and walking um, to get to the U.S.-Mexico border. And folks are leaving their home countries because there's absolutely no stability. And the majority of these migrants who are leaving Cameroon are a part of the uh, Anglophone community. And so um, those who've been detained in custody, in ICE custody, um, have held over half a dozen strikes in detention centers. These are people who have effectively no real rights in the United States, but they are recognizing um, that they can refuse to take orders and actually rebel in immigrant detention centers. Um, And primarily they're rebelling because even though they've had their credible fear interviews approved, someone has said, yes, you have a reason to migrate. They are still seeing across the board denials of their asylum claims, denials of their appeals and denials of their parole. So they're seeing very lengthy stays in immigrant detention centers. Um, And that's one of the fights we support um, strongly. Last year, when a brother named Nebane Abenwe, um, who's Cameroonian, was killed in ICE custody because of um, neglect in the San Diego detention center he was at, he essentially fell off of a a triple-decker bunk bed and was not given immediate um, medical attention. Um, And we were a part of a community effort to demand further investigation and um, offer his family some form of justice in trying to get um, his body back home so that the right rituals could be performed. Um, So that's been a part of our struggle. Uh, is this solidarity with with um, fights across the world. And, um, you know, very recently, there's also been um, Nigerians who have taken to the streets to challenge SARS, which is the special anti-robbery squad, a police unit that's known for extreme violence, abuse, and murder of the people in Nigeria. 
um, the government responded quickly by dissolving SARS and promising to compensate victims of, of SARS. Um, but then they went and put an entity called SWAT in its place, which many Nigerians have said um, without any uncertainty that SWAT will just have the same impact but have a different name. And so um, rather than slowing down because they got their demand to remove SARS, um, folks have actually increased their fight in the streets. The masses have um, pushed even more to end SWAT as well. Um, because until we recognize that until imperialism um, is no longer a threat to our people, it'll just keep taking different forms. Um, if we get rid of um, police, our local police departments and ICE, they'll just come in the form of other privatized ways of protecting um, wealth and protecting, you know, law and order um, or property. Um, so we recognize the need to uplift the struggle, struggle in Nigeria, and we continue to build relationships with organizers on the ground to see how we can support them um, with resources. And um, another BLMP also has a committee that is currently focused on political and popular education with the Garifuna community. Um, there are thousands of migrants from Central America who identify, especially Honduras, who identify as Garifuna. Um, they are descendants of Africans who were displaced from the Caribbean, well, from Africa to the Caribbean, then to different countries across Central America. Um, they have their own language, their own culture, their own land. However, um, greedy governments and multinational corporations um, have forced them to migrate to the US. So we have a committee led by Garifuna people who are building um, solidarity with Ofrana, um, the National Black Fraternal Organization of Honduras, um, uh, as as they address the reality of communities who are living in the coast of Honduras um, that are threatened by eviction, displacement, intimidation, um, due to the high rates of oil, palm oil plantations. Um, yes, I said plantations. Like to this day, indigenous people in Central America are being displaced because their own um governments have essentially sold their land to corporations and foreign investments um, who either want that coastal property because, you know, beachfront property, yay, or they want to um, further grow their oil pl palm plantations. And um, historically, actually, the, the constitution in Honduras did not allow any foreign capital investments in their land, in their native land. Um, but when that article was removed from their constitution, any foreign interests could now come and put their money into buying indigenous land. And one by one, our people's land has been taken from them and they've been forced to migrate. And that's why we have a huge Garifuna contingent um, in BLMP. And um, we also... So yeah, so solidarity with Cameroon, solidarity with Nigeria, solidarity with the Garifuna people. Um, we also um, fight 
I also believe that we have to fight reactionaries that don't have badges. Um, not everybody comes in the form of like a police officer or ICE officer or official. Um, you know, reactionaries are people who are willing to murder or harm us in order to protect this regressive society that we live in. And so Again, while our calls to like disarm and defund and disband law enforcement agencies are super important, um, they won't stop fascist murders like Daniel Perry, Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, and then in August, we saw the murder of a family of five Senegalese migrants in Colorado. Their home was burned to death by by violent, you know, reactionaries, not police officers, um, not ICE. But reactionaries um, who who wanted to take up arms on behalf of the imperialist system. Um, and so, yeah, it's important to defund our police departments, um, but uh, people will step up in behalf of them if we don't also fight um, reactionaries. Um, and and yes, uh, I'm running out of time, but I did also want to mention um, that we there's so many ways to fight ICE. Um, you know, they have contracts with companies like Swift Air, Palantir, Geo Group, Nexus by Libre. Um, those are all things that maintain this monstrous system in detaining and deporting um, migrants, um, but we can fight that by getting those contracts canceled, offering housing to migrants, offering interpretation and translation services, um, raising bond money to get our people out, um, making sure that families know how to fight the system pro se because there's not enough immigration officials or uh, attorneys to be able to help all the people who are currently detained by ICE. Um, so it's really important that we equip our people with the knowledge needed um, to fight their own immigration cases. Um, and finally, I'll just say that, you know, we're told that law enforcement maintains law and order. We need ICE um, in order to maintain law and order at the border. Um, but you know, as organizers, we have to ask ourselves, who is this order for? Um, order means sustaining the lives and livelihoods of the ruling class. So order to order to the ruling class looks like over 200,000 people dead in the U.S. due to the pandemic. It looks like the militarization of our border. Um, it looks like tampering down of migration through these awful policies that 45 has implemented. Um, order to the ruling class looks like 2.3 million people incarcerated in the United States and millions of deportation. So that's what order looks like. It doesn't look like the right to migrate, the right to quality healthcare, education, housing, jobs with dignity. And um, if, if that is what order meant, then we would see enforcement that is making sure we're not having to pay our debts to imperial countries. We would see enforcement that dissolves multinational corporations. And we would see enforcement that challenges embassies and keeps them from issuing travel documents to detainees, to migrant detainees. So these are some of the ways we can, we are fighting back currently and can keep fighting back. And I encourage y'all to get plugged in.
Thank you so much, Deborah. That was amazing. Um, I really appreciate getting to learn more about um, you all's work um, for um, on behalf of Zaza and um, the work to free migrants. Um, uh, thank you um, so much for highlighting the ways in which migrants are forced into um, low wage and criminalized economies, um, giving examples from um, uh, the fights that our communities are engaging in in Cameroon um, and Nigeria, um, the work um, of uh, like the, uh, political edu education work of the Garifuna community that you all are doing, um, the and also like your highlighting of the um, the need to fight reactionary forces, um, both who um, collaborate with the PIC and sometimes the PIC relies on as well to um, suppress our communities. Um, so uh, yes, thank you for, for all of the um, work that you all are doing and for sharing that with us today. Um, and so now I'm gonna pass it over uh, to, to Will, um, who's gonna talk a little bit about um, organizing um, the recruitment a resistance to like organizing in resistance to recruitment of our folks into the PIC. Thank you so much, Will. Well, thanks. Thanks, Woods. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so as I mentioned earlier, like, you know, our, our folks, um, like, especially we've seen in New York City, like uh, South Asian, Desi, Indo-Caribbean folks uh, heavily joining the um the NYPD and like joining uh, all other forms of law enforcement, including ICE. Um, so, and, you know, I kind of also want to like uplift uh, Deborah's point around crimmigration. Like it is, again, how it's really um, intertwined in our communities. Um, here in New York City, we've seen um, ICE and NYPD work together to, uh, to, to criminalize, to, to detain and deport our folks. Um, in 2017, we did. Uh, we had a drum member that um, from Guyana that was picked up um, uh, by ICE with the help of NY and the NYPD in his home in in Richmond Hill, Queens. Um, and you know, like then there have been other cases in our communities. Um, we've seen in restaurants, uh, Bangladeshi officers would come in and then you know uh, speak to ask if there is like a restaurant worker that that works here, and then. They would leave and ICE would come in. Like these are stories that we know of that we've seen in our communities, right? And we have to continue see like like doing that deep political grounding, not within just our memberships, but how we develop our members to take action in their communities to counter these forces, right? And how these forces, as mentioned earlier, are being trained by other imperialist forces around the world um, to target our communities. And how we make those connections, and you know, like especially for uh, you know, like the for our base, we also have a lot of folks that are also um, who have uh, also crossed borders, especially from our Bangladeshi Punjabi uh, membership bases that have had to leave because of uh, oppression back home. Um, and now over here, we're seeing how um, similar forces are targeting them. Um, and also like, you know, having to resist and also because of, um, especially now what, what has happened in the last four years, causing a lot of fear in our communities, but 
This is especially a time where we, I, I would say we've actually organized even more powerfully to, to resource these fascist racist forces. Um, and, you know, so I want to also uh, discuss um, a little bit about at drum, like, you know, our work is very much grounded in um, the, the histories and the resistance that's been led in this country by black and indigenous communities uh, internationally that's been led by uh, uh, Muslim and other communities uh, fighting against uh, forces and forces around the world. Um, and how like us as uh, working class South Asians and Indo-Caribbeans, like while that, that is the focus of drum is to build the power of folks in, in within those communities and our communities and build their leadership. It's really important and central to build solidarity, real solidarity um, with Black, Latinx, and Indigenous communities to stop imperialism um, here and abroad. So at Drum, um, I think the slide is up. Uh, like we created this graphic um, that discusses the different levels of solidarity that we think about, that we engage with our members with in Drum to really ground us. Um, so this graphic also was developed through like the the input um, and the feedback from experiences we've seen from other folks in the movement and folks who represent folks in um, who are part of this uh, panel tonight. Um, and so this is really in terms of like really grounding a movement experience. So the most basic level of solidarity that, um, that we describe is symbolic solidarity, which is really like, you know, um, I'm going to say that I support um, a movement. I'll speak about it on a panel. Um, like, you know, I'll put out a statement. Um, but many, and it's, it's about raising consciousness. But many times it rings hollow when actually we don't demonstrate it in times of need. So it's like, you know, I will speak about, or we can speak about police brutality, but what happens when we're actually, sh like, are we actually going to, uh, turn out and support when we actually see murders of black folks by the police. Um, then there is transactional solidarity, which is, um, it's more of a mutual benefit. I'll, I'll support you if you support me. So we turn up to each other's actions and events. This, this is also raising awareness and, and consciousness, but it begins to develop um, relationships and bonds between communities between different oppressed communities. Um, and then there's embodied solidarity, which is um, folks, individuals, mostly like really embodying these beliefs and visions of solidarity. And it's seen in like acts and informations that require some form of like physical or material sacrifice. So examples of that is like when um, activists and, and individuals stop ICE fans from deporting folks. Um, it's blocking highways, right? Um, it's joining efforts, uh, joining BDS efforts. It's chaining ourselves to like doors of like housing court when the when we're people are trying to evict us, when our landlords are trying to evict us. Like these are all different ways of embodied solidarity. And then um, there is transformative solidarity, which is the one we really try to move our folks towards. It's when it's developing with masses uh, of or, uh, oppressed and marginalized communities that work together, that choose to forgo a benefit 
because it would actually cause harm and it would be at the expense of other oppressed communities, right? So it's when already oppressed people collectively decide, deliberate and decide, I mean, to make material sacrifices for themselves, right? To actually say, I'm not going to support an example is like, I'm not going to support immigration reform because that actually is going to continue the border militarization and enforcement and also increase funding to jails and detention centers and prisons, right? That that means like many times our folks, our drum members, like do not support immigration reform, even though it would actually benefit many of them because we know the impact it would have on other oppressed communities. And it would continue to separate and divide us instead of wanting to actually build real unity. And so like the transformative solidarity is like really working to build that long-term visions and unity of society of uh, um, marginalized oppressed communities of different backgrounds working together to stop the uh, imperialism, fascism within the US, but also abroad as well. Um, so some, so you know, I, I think a recent example that I wanted to share uh, around like how transformative solidarity has worked in drum is our uh, recent uh, work to stop the um, the the in New York City to stop the city's jail expansion plan. Um, so uh, last year, um, the city council uh, uh, de- de- deliberated and uh, voted to uh, on a jail expansion plan to open four new jails in New York City. So um, for us, you know, a lot of our folks in our membership and within our communities have become supportive of abolishing ICE and detention centers. Like, you know, the media has continued to show like the, the atrocious um, things happening in detention centers and, uh, and with ICE. Um, but many times, actually, we don't see that same support for the root cause of like the complex, right? Jail prisons. Like we we don't get that same, especially from immigrant communities. We don't get that same force of solidarity. So, um, for us, it's really important to um, show like it, it, so. We did that groundwork with our folks for in, in membership meetings and in meetings like. Okay, so we support abolishing ICE and detention centers. Let's actually do a deep understanding of the root cause of where the origins, I should say, of ICE of and detention centers. So as we did those discussions with folks, um, our members uh, voted to wanting to do something to stop the jail expansion plan here in New York City. So, you know, uh, this, this led to where our folks were, you know, showing out to actions with, with, with Black and Latinx communities who are more impacted than, than, than our folks around the jail system here in the city. And, you know, showing up to actions, testifying at public hearings, um, you know, having our own actions in our South Asian Indo-Caribbean communities on why we need to actually... S- uh, oppose and actually stop the building of jails and also think about how we're moving towards a society that we actually don't need jails and create community support um, and support each other. So, um, and I think so. we did that and we also 
um, did a lot of outreach, street outreach, like outside of the of the actions where drum members were going into their their, their neighborhoods and, you know, asking folks, hey, are we like, have you heard about this jail plan? Right. What do you think about you know, and asking questions of folks like, do you think we should be spending $10 billion to build more cages, to build cages in general? Or should we spend that money towards supports and needs for our community, right? So it was really doing that deep political shift in our communities of like, like our, our city, our government, our politicians want to um, continue spending money on jails, but then actually our trains are not running well on time. Our schools continue to get underfunded. Um, we can't get health care, like, but yet they they want to find money to build jails. Um, so that, you know, so and that led to real political shifts in our community. Um, it led to where we had a lot of like most of our interactions on the ground were like, no, like we shouldn't be doing this. How how can how can I get involved in stopping this? So we would give them like certain options of how to get involved. And to me, that was really powerful of like how um, our membership, you know, showed up with, with Black and Latinx communities to oppose this jail plan. Um, and I would another example is the, the fight against Amazon last year as well. Um, Amazon wanted to open a second um, headquarters in Queens in New York, and that would have ravished again, working class communities of color in Queens um, and spurred more gentrification that's already happening in Queens. Um, so, you know, we, we we worked with other groups on how do we actually, of different backgrounds, um, to come together to actually work to to stop this from happening, to, to stop, you know, again, another capitalist, you know, system coming in to uh, exploit our people and actually remove our people. Um, so this led to where we actually, you know, worked with folks from like, even like middle-class folks that were like, Hey, like we want to support. Okay. Like, you know, what are you going to do? What are you willing to, to give up and sacrifice in this moment where they, they turned out to, to the actions, um, and where they turned out to actually use their, what connections and resources they had to actually support working class undocumented folks from leading the, to lead that fight to to stop the to stop Amazon from coming into Queens. And so like to us it's how are we building um again the the leadership of working class people and them to lead this work, but also how are we working in connection together? Um, and that's why it's really important when we speak about solidarity is like how are we connecting our movements? Um, and how are we supporting each other and learning from each other and building with each other and not just in a transactional way, but it's like, actually we're working for the same, um, the same purpose of stopping imperialism here and throughout the world. Right. And, you know, if we come and, and, and if we can come together and like with that purpose, like, you know, and, and understand that there are many forces that we that we all um, are actually fighting against, and how we actually come together to understand how we're, the tactics we're using to also support each other and, and fighting against those forces. 
Thank you so much, Will. Um, thank you for um, explaining the ways in which um, the PIC targets our communities for recruitment um, in order to divide our communities against one another, um, uh, against each other, and divide us um, uh, uh, from solidarity across um, uh, across other communities that are targeted. Um, and thank you for introducing us to transformative solidarity. Um, a um that like a practice that um engaging um in a way that uh with building organizing uh like that builds our strength both within and across uh oppressed communities um and thank you for talking about jail expansion um and the deep political education that drum um engaged in with your membership in order to um transform the members consciousness around um the pic and um imperialism and um and then giving the example of how you that that strengthen relationships within your communities and across other communities in new york city um and um and also talking a little bit about um the amazon fight um which I know that was like we was one, um, and which is exciting, and um, and the impact that um, both it would ha Amazon would have had in New York City, um, and that the fact that you that the the campaign against it won, um, how what it what it did have for building community power. Um, so now, lastly, I'm going to pass it off to um, Lada, um, who is going to talk um, a little bit more about resistance to the exchange of tools and tactics um, of uh, policing and militarization um, across borders. Oh. Um, so yeah, I have been tasked with talking specifically about the relationship between the United States and Israel and that partnership around militarism and policing. Um, in many ways in this country, there's been a campaign that's been launched nationally called Deadly Exchange, which is intended to really organize against that relationship, to, to separate out that relationship and to strip away the power um, of the role of Israel here in the United States and to strip away the power of police. Um, so I want to start by saying from our from our vantage point um, and our understanding of that relationship, we see Israel as a partner to the United States and specifically as a partner to U.S. imperialism. Um, and in that way, it's also an instrument uh, of U.S. imperialism. Um, so in many ways, we oftentimes people will talk about the issue of police as an issue with the training by Israel, especially in the Palestine Solidarity Movement. And we very much intentionally make it a point to say the problem with police, the problem with law enforcement is not that Israel trains them. The problem is capitalism. The problem is policing itself. The problem is the prison industrial complex, which is aimed at managing and containing people and in turn, quelling movements for self-determination. So similarly, US imperialism is aimed at resource extraction, um, land theft, constantly in search of new frontiers for capital. And how they enforce that is through militarism, through warfare, through repression and policing in our region. 
And in our region in particular, Israel is a proxy for this um, and is used as a laboratory. And is funded in large part, in most part, by the United States. So the logical outcome um, is that there's a partnership between the U.S. and Israel because they can use the settler colonial state, right, as a laboratory for surveillance, technology, weaponry, tactics around militarism and policing to be exported and exchanged globally. But also to understand that the Israel also learns from the United States, as it does from other repressive countries and colonial states around the world. Um, so for us at AROC, the intersection of this, um, you know, between the Arab and Muslim community and policing and the relationship to that with other black and brown communities, especially after 9-11, is really important for us to organize around and understand in terms of the way in which it intensified it expanded the role of policing and militarism. So I'm going to share a story about how we in our community organized and engaged at this intersection, namely the Stop Urban Shield Coalition, which Critical Resistance was also a member of. Um, so first, I'll start with the backdrop, which is 9-11 and the war on terror. And some have already spoken about that. I'm not going to go into great detail on the war on terror, but to just say um, as some have already alluded to, that it's, it really consolidated the forces of militarization, right? It, in, it itself was an intensification of militarization that was expressed in various things like the Patriot Act and the cycle of endless wars that we now see ourselves in. Um, and it's a continuity, a con, a con, it's a kind of a continuation of the necessity of a neoliberal state to use different forms of violence to manage instability and inequality, right, to maintain control and for the, the, the elites to manage the many. Um, and the expression of this global crisis of resource extraction and warfare um, is really was embodied in many ways through the war on terror globally, but also was brought to us right here in our neighborhoods in, in the United States. And it intended to really um, to police its way out, to use violence um, and warfare um, at, to, uh, to deal with and address inequality. So Urban Shield and where this comes in is Urban Shield was, and it's always exciting to say was because we successfully managed to put an end to this training. It was the largest police militarization training in the world. It was a weapons expo. It was a war games competition that took place every year on the weekend of 9-11. It took place every year on the weekend of 9-11 here in the Bay Area, but it also engaged law enforcement agencies and other departments and agencies from across the world. Um, and essentially, they engaged in military exercises and competed for points. Um, it's the same thing that the U.S. military was doing abroad in our homelands, right? So the enemy combatant being the Arab or the Muslim and historically being other black and brown people around the world on different continents. Now, the enemy combatant was the black or brown person, the Arab or Muslim immigrant here in the United States, the activists in many cases. Um, and in these cases, these same enemy combatants were actually our neighbors, our family, our friends. So these police departments, but not only police departments, also emergency responders and EMTs and others were trained in these exercises to see us as enemy combatants in our own backyard. So really bringing warfare abroad 
here to the United States. Um, and that has increasingly become the logic, right, of, of militarism and has increasingly become the logic of the United States and how it addresses any social problem, which is really the result that we are now seeing around neoliberalism and the way it's played out and around how social services have now, um, the way to address social services is through militarism, right? Um, and I say this in particular with the case of Urban Shield, because Urban Shield really represents for us how it is we confront the dynamic and the relationship between the prison industrial complex and U.S. imperialism, right? It's this logic that we have to contain and manage people um, globally and locally. And as that is the way for the for certain people to stay in power and to repress any movements for self-determination, whether it be in the United States or elsewhere. But also that any natural disaster, any social problem, the response to that has to be a military response. So what's important to name here is Urban Shield was billed as an emergency response training, emergency preparedness training. So we had firefighters and EMTs and nurses attending these trainings to be able to be prepared for these disasters, that impending disasters that may come, right? And the way to respond to these disasters is to have governments like that from the state of Israel, law enforcement agencies, which also participated in Urban Shield, and Mexico and Bahrain and, any, and many other countries around the world would come here to the Bay Area and train federal, local agencies across the United States on how to respond to emergencies. Now, this has become really the norm, right? It's become common sense logic that the way to respond to emergencies through policing and militarism. So we took on this campaign as Arabs, understanding that, that we had a particular role to play to expose this issue around the war on terror being used to further the criminalization, the management, the control, the repression, um, existing experiences of other black and brown communities, but also to move our own community around the question of policing and militarization, right? It wasn't enough for us to say, and I appreciate Drum's um, understanding of the of solidarity in this regard, it wasn't enough for us to say, oh, let's just get Israel to stop training in Urban Shield. No, that, that wasn't the outcome we wanted because Israel not training in Urban Shield would still allow Urban Shield to embolden, expand policing and intensify militarization in this country. The issue wasn't Israel. The issue was policing. So from the very beginning, we made it a point that for us, this campaign was about ending Urban Shield, but not only ending Urban Shield altogether. It was also about redistributing economic and political power. It was about ensuring that the money that was going to Urban Shield, that this concept of emergency preparedness that Alameda County, our county, um, was committed to, had would be prioritized community preparedness, health and well-being of communities over militarized responses, over policing, right? And so we sought that through the entirety of the campaign, which lasted over six years. Um, and so the the other thing I'll just say very quickly is one of the main tactics we used around Urban Shield was coalition building. So for us, it was important that we didn't just take this on as an Arab Muslim-led organization because this took place on the weekend of 9-11 and was really targeting the Arab or Muslim immigrant enemy combatants, the internal enemy in this case. It was also important that we lifted up the struggles of all communities impacted by policing and militarization and created a coalition that represented that, which included 
healthcare workers, which included youth, which included labor, which included faith institutions, um, and other black and brown communities. And we developed a structure and a model for organizing that really centered that leadership in the strategy and the advancement of the campaign, but also engaged in a multi-pronged strategy of different tactics, right? So we were not only engaging in direct action where we shut down Urban Shield when they moved it to a location that they thought was remote in a suburban neighborhood that we wouldn't mobilize to. And we decided at that point, well, we can have a statewide mobilization and prove that no matter where it goes, our community feels this is important enough to, to challenge. So we showed up and we shut it down um, in a city called Pleasanton, California. Any of you are familiar with the Bay Area? And But it wasn't enough to just do direct action. We did direct action because we wanted to confront this um, this very devastating and harmful training head on, especially as we're escalating tactics. Well, we also engage legislators. We engage decision makers who um, may or may not align with us politically on everything, may not identify themselves as abolitionists, may not even agree with defunding police. Um, but at the end of the day, they were committed to community preparedness. They were committed, committed to alternatives to disaster preparedness, and we were able to ally ally ourselves with a united front of people who all felt committed to taking on the the largest militarization training of police in the the world happening right here in the Bay Area, led by a sheriff that was aligned with the Trump administration, and understanding that Urban Shield essentially represented everything our communities are fighting against and have been fighting against, from collaboration with ICE you know, where, and where ICE was also trained in Urban Shield, hosting white supremacists like the Oath Keepers, where they were allowed to have a, a tent in the community fair of Urban Shield, training with officers and law enforcement agencies from apartheid Israel and other regimes around the world, glorifying policing and glorifying militarization, glorifying warfare, right? Blatant discrimination um, against Muslims and Arabs and other black and brown people in this country. And also the ways in which it exploited tragedies, right? It exploited tragedies and natural disasters and real public health needs and continuing to align with the Trump administration along the way. So we were able to make the case that Urban Shield was not only something the Stop Urban Shield Coalition stood against, it was something that all the people fighting for dignity, for the well-being of people in their neighborhoods, who have children in schools, who go to hospitals and work in those hospitals, the firefighters, the, the emergency responders, um, healthcare workers, everyone felt like this was something that does not represent what we want for our county, what we want for our city, what we want for our country, what we want for the world, right? And it really was representing an expansion and an intensification of existing policies, existing problems of the United States. So it wasn't something new, but we knew by taking on Urban Shield, this large training that was engaging with the state of Israel, so this was an international in scope, right, and other international agencies that also had the support of the Alameda County Sheriff. And if those organized around policing know, sheriffs are one of the most powerful institutions in this country and really hard to take on, um, but also taking on policing, taking on the role of police in our neighborhoods, taking on militarization and warfare, really understanding that this This campaign was about making the connections between the needs of everyday people and the the needs of the state to militarize, to privatize 
those same needs and how it is that we can redefine that and redistribute power in a way that would actually address the real concerns of everyday people. And so we built a whole coalition. We were making demands from the very beginning that even if you're not an abolitionist um, organization, you're still welcome in the coalition as long as you understand that our demands are to put an end to this, not to make it better, not to make it prettier, not to reform it. But this is what we're committed to. And if you can come along with that, then we are in this together. And that we decided to really develop alternatives. We did the work to do research day in and day out so that we could actually point to what else this funding could go to. We were the experts. And if and if we weren't the experts on every single issue, we brought in the experts on every single issue so that they could also identify where it is the knowledge and the information and the experience and the other resources that they could go to as decision makers. Um, and we built this broad coalition that essentially won. So after six years of organizing and developing different tactics and strategies so that we could engage in this fight, knowing that we were all committed to putting an end to this, knowing by doing so, we were chipping away at the prison industrial complex. We were chipping away at U.S. imperialism. We were chipping away at the relationship between the United States and Israel. And most importantly, we're building power in our communities and proving that we have the solutions that we can, in fact, develop solutions and alternatives and implement them. And we ensured from the beginning to the end, because we didn't stop when the decision makers in 2018 said, "Okay, we're not going to fund Urban Shield anymore. We made sure that we were also involved in what was that money going to go to instead. And we ensured that the priorities of our county and our decision makers were aligned with the priorities of the most vulnerable of our communities, meaning it was prioritizing the health and well-being of people and not a militarized response to community disasters and preparedness. And as a result, we won. And I think this is a victory that we can all learn from. It was, in fact, a defund victory. We didn't even use that language at the time. It wasn't normalized language to say defund police. But it has become much more normalized because of the great work of Movement for Black Lives the rebellions across this country and decades of work against policing um, that have taken place, we can now say this was always meant to be a defunding campaign and we defunded Urban Shield and we funded our communities instead. And this is an example of what's possible for us both locally, but and to understand Urban Shield and its scale was not just a local issue. It was a national issue. It was an international issue. It represented decades long struggle of hypermilitarization and, and deprioritization of our people and our needs and public health and really centering the needs of the state to ensure that the elite continue to benefit um, on the backs of the many. Um, so I wanted to share that as an example of a campaign that was both successful, but also a lesson for us to learn from what's possible if we are to build unity, collective understanding, clear politics and analysis, and really be rooted and guided um, by the needs of the community and building leadership in the process. Thank you so much, Lada. Um, thank you uh, for teaching us more about the um, Stop the Deadly Exchange work um, and Israel's role as um, junior partner in U.S. imperialism and the deployment of militarism and policing. Um, and thank you for teaching us uh, so um, in in such an in-depth way about the fight against Urban Shield, um, the work um, uh, 
of building solidarity um, and creating a strong coalition um, that put that that um, wages um, a united for, front with force strong enough to end um, something like Urban Shield um, and to actually really um, re- be able to redistribute power and resources to our, our communities. Um, so brilliant. Thank you, you all, um, for sharing all the ways that we can struggle, um, against, uh, the PIC and win the fight for abolition, um, uh, internationally, um, and continue to, um, to, um, resist, um, the, imperialist project um and build um the future that we're we're um our communities need um and with that uh our time is up um as um we do this work um we know that it's um our collective strength solidarity um and our exchange of tools and tactics um and the and our exchange of strength and power that will be what wins um against um the organizing of the uh the prison industrial complex and our broader opponents um um in the fight against imperialism. So thank you, Nicolas Cruz from the Red Nation. Thank you, Deborah Alemu from Black LGBTQ Migrant Project. Thank you, Will Depu from DRUM, um, Daisy's Rising Up and Moving. And thank you, Lara Kiswani from Arab Resource and Organizing um, Center or AROC. Um, thanks to Haymarket, our interpretation team, LaShonda and Laverne Lowe, um, and Jen, our captioner. Um, check us uh, out next week, the Abolition Now political education series um, for our final sec- session, October 29th um, at 5 p.m. Eastern. Um, and that'll be Building Abolition Now, Planting Seeds, Growing Abolitionist Futures, where we'll um, host a panel of community members discussing the work of building um, abolitionist infrastructure, lessons learned, and the visions for the future. Um, and with that, Good evening. Thank you all for joining us. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.